John's Gospel, chapter 2, commencing at verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Can I just uh, make a few introductory uh, remarks before we <coughs> sing our, our next hymn? Some time ago uh, on, in the Tuesday night meeting we, we looked at the first chapter of the little book of Ephesians and in those 30 verses of that first chapter the writer, Paul, he mentions the word gospel six times. And we ask ourselves the question, what is the gospel? And most of us, of course, uh, know what the gospel is. The gospel means good news. But the Apostle Paul, uh, he goes more directly to that question uh, in 1 Corinthians. And he says this. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, 
and that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so we noticed in our study that the gospel is all about a person and all about the, the work that that person did. On another meeting, uh, we looked at what I was calling a gospel word. It was the word reconciliation, used 19 times in the Bible. Reconciliation is a gospel word, it's a, it's a good news word, because it describes what happens when an enemy becomes my friend. One of the benefits of the gospel is this, that when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. When sin separated us from God, we became enemies. Man walked away from God. We said, in effect, goodbye to God, the one who created us. And so to overcome that separation from God, to reverse that alien status, we needed someone who could provide reconciliation. And God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Reconciliation. But then there's another gospel word, and I would like to consider that with you uh, this evening. I would like to do that by using the example of a character that we read about in our scripture reading earlier. I want you to look with me at the key text in all the Bible on the subject of regeneration or being born again. George Whitfield, who was uh, a very famous 18th century preacher, said that the subject of, re of regeneration is the very hinge on which our salvation turns. The very hinge on which our salvation turns. And we'll have a look at that subject, looking at this character, Nicodemus, in just a few moments' time. We'll sing this hymn, 254, please. 254. I am a new creation, no more in condemnation. Here in the grace of God, I stand. We'll keep our seats and we'll sing those four verses, please.
we have read your word, and we know that your word is absolutely true and completely trustworthy. Lord, grant that we may truly learn the wisdom it imparts, and to its heavenly teaching turn with simple, childlike hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Almost exactly three years ago this week, uh, an old man rested his, head, rested his head on a hospital pillow, and he breathed his last breath on earth. The man I'm thinking about just now was a household name back in the 1960s and 70s, and his life had been a life full of contradictions. Back then, he was young, he was rich, he was brilliant, he was ambitious, he was a champion debater in university, and he was an expert liar in business, and he had the reputation as a dirty tricks artist. He could trash the character of a colleague and walk away seemingly without a conscience. They said he would get to the top of his game, up the top of his game, and, and he did. He would do anything to get his way, and if you got in his way, then things could be very bad for you. Getting even for this character was a virtue, and he was very, very good at it. He had a nickname, and he loved it. They called him the Axeman. His boss had a nickname too. They called him Tricky Dicky. <laughs> Some of you know who I'm talking about. From 1969 to 1974, Tricky Dicky was Richard Nixon, President Nixon, President of the United States. The Axeman and the special counsel to the President was a man called Chuck Colson. Things changed unexpectedly for Colson one night in 1973. Something, something mysterious, something puzzling, something unusual was happening to this hard man. Something that he found, to the end of his days, he found extremely difficult to explain. He was arrested for his dirty tricks, he pleaded guilty to the charges that were brought against him. But he was starting to understand not just guilty before the courts of the land, but he was beginning to realize very quickly that he was guilty before a higher court as a sinner before a holy God. And Chuck Colson wrote a book. It was a bestseller. It was his attempt to try and to communicate, to convey to, to the readers something that is almost impossible to explain. And he gave the book a title. He called it Born Again. Now, a few years later, a peanut farmer from Georgia called Jimmy Carter was elected the 39th president of the United States. The United States had never had a president who said he was a born-again Christian. This was a first. He said more than once 
I am a born-again Christian, and the most important thing in my life, beyond all else, is Jesus Christ. And so since those uh, years in the early uh, the 1960s and the early 70s, that expression, born again, and Noel mentioned it this morning in his message, that expression, born again, has been applied to all kinds of situations. But it's a phrase that has been misused and twisted and corrupted. And I learned last week that there's even a, a, a carpet cleaning company uh, that's calling itself Born Again Carpet Care. I don't think it's an air shower, but it is around Scotland somewhere. But listen, the Bible knows no other kind of Christian than the person who has been born again. Born again, or born from above, or made alive, or new life, or quickened, or our gospel word for this evening, regenerated. All those words describe the same experience. <coughs> and that phrase, born again, it's a real Bible word. And it's used for the first time in verse 3 of our reading uh, this evening. And then it's used again in verse 7. Uh, I started to read from the last few verses of chapter 2. There were no chapters or verses in the original writings, and they're put there, thankfully, for our uh, convenience. But I started to read from the last, two the last few verses of, of chapter 2 because I wanted us to notice very carefully the words in verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 reads like this. Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. And then John, the writer, goes even further in verse 25. He says, John did not need any, te any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knew what was in man. During the, the time of the great seven-day uh, Passover festival, that city of Jerusalem would have been swarming with people and with animals. In normal times, I understand that there was perhaps a few thousand people lived in that city. But during Passover time, uh, that population would swell so that there were hundreds of thousands of people there. In fact, some of the historians would tell us that well over a million people with their various animals would be crowded, massed uh, into that city. And at that particular time of our reading, many astonishing things uh, had been happening. And we're told that many believed in the name of Jesus. And then they believed, they believed because of the miracles that Jesus was doing. But when you read carefully in those verses and the verses in chapter 3, you will understand that their belief was superficial. Their belief was shallow. Their belief, if you like, was external. It hadn't changed their hearts. They believed when they saw the wonderful works. They were fascinated by the amazing signs that Jesus was doing. The Jews were particularly impressed by signs. They were looking for signs. The Greeks, well, they were impressed.
oppressed by wisdom. But the Jews said, give us a sign. Give us a sign. And this carpenter from Nazareth comes on the scene. And he comes on the scene with unheard of authority. And they were mesmerized. G.B. Phillips' Bible translation puts it like this. Many believed in him as they saw the signs he gave. But Jesus did not trust himself to them. He did not need anybody to tell him what people were like. He understood human nature. But the crowd were attracted by the spectacular. The multitudes that gathered were fascinated by the sensational. But Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him what people were like. Because Jesus could see right, see right into the hearts of each individual in that massive crowd. And Jesus still looks into the hearts of people. And he looks into the hearts of preacher and everyone that's gathered in this room tonight. He still can look deeply and scrutinize carefully every detail of our hearts. And then I think there's an interesting term. There's a contrast made commencing uh, at the beginning of chapter 3. Most of the translations uh, put it like this. They would say, um, and there was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus, or now there was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus. But I think that um, we would be quite legitimate to put it like this. Where am I here? Lost my notes. Yes, there's a contrast made, and that's why the writer, John, puts those details in the last two verses of chapter 2 about the crowd that were mesmerized by the, uh, the signs and the wonders that were being done, but that their belief was not deep. It was a shallow kind of belief, and Jesus could see right into their hearts. But there's a contrast made when we move in to verse 1 of chapter 3. And I think we can quite correctly put the word but there. But there was a man of the Pharisees. So there's that contrast. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And I believe the writer is saying there was someone in the crowd that day, someone whose, someone whose reaction was vastly different Someone whose response was unlike the others in the crowd. Someone whose heart was being strangely warmed. There was, if you like, a strange wind blowing. His heart was stirred. He was not exactly sure why this was happening. He was perplexed, perhaps even confused. And in his mind there were many, many questions. In the deepest core of his being, there's a terrible uncertainty. And I want us to think about this man, Nicodemus, and his reaction as he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to consider him in a way, hopefully, that will help us understand a wee bit, a little bit, of what it means to be born again. To help us understand what it means to be regenerated. 
Amos, his name only appears five times in the Bible. And it only appears in the Gospel by John. He's mentioned by no other uh, Gospel writer. We first meet him in Jerusalem at night. Now I know that some preachers make a great deal of that Nicodemus came by night. Some, some Bible teachers spend a long time in sermons discussing and suggesting all kinds of reasons why Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night. I'm not exactly sure uh, why he came at night. Did he come secretly under the cover of darkness because he didn't want his, uh, his colleagues to know? Some say that he was timid, cautious, afraid maybe. I don't think so. Not sure about that. Or maybe he was just a busy man at a busy time in Jerusalem. And night was the most suitable time to spend time with Jesus. We don't know. We don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. Well, it's okay uh, to preach on those subjects. I would have no objection to that. But with the hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem at Passover time, here's what I was thinking. It must have been extremely difficult for this man to search out the place where Jesus was staying that night. And I think it demonstrates how serious this man really was. I think it tells us how vital it was for this man to meet Jesus. Nicodemus was in real earnest. And it would cost him, I'm sure. Scotland has had many great preachers and Bible teachers. In the last century, there was one man, Alexander White. He was one of the best. He had a great imagination. And when he preached in his church in Edinburgh, his lively imagination could pierce through any subject. He could take up any event or any character from the scriptures, from any book of the Bible, and almost become like one of the characters as he preached. In one of his sermons, he suggests, he suggests that it wasn't the first time that Nicodemus and Jesus met. We don't know that for sure. But old Dr. White pictures Nicodemus one day down by the Jordan. Down by the Jordan where John the Baptist was. And one day by the River Jordan, he saw a young man called Jesus coming up out of the water. He saw the heavens open. He heard a voice say, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He heard the baptizer say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And I think for this man Nicodemus, it must have been one of the most unforgettable moments in his life. I'm sure he wrestled many times as he went home, wrestled in his heart with the question, Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Can I go back in my own mind and 
and use my imagination a little. Is it possible that Nicodemus was also in a group one day? One day in the temple when a 12-year-old boy named Jesus was found sitting among the great rabbis, the distinguished teachers, listening to them, asking questions. And all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And is it just possible that on that same day, sitting at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel, sitting there with his teacher was another young man, perhaps a teenager, a young man called Saul from Tarsus. Is it possible too, was he asking a question, who is this Jesus? And I want to ask you and I want to ask myself, whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a Christian or not, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever really asked yourself, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus and why did he come? What real difference does he make? Or would he make? Or should he make in my life and in your life? What real difference does Jesus make? I'm absolutely sure that this man, Nicodemus, famous ruler, man of letters, a member of the highest religious court in the land, I'm sure he was considering carefully those two most important questions. In fact, the most important two questions that any of us could ever ask. Who is Jesus Christ? Why did he come? And now here he is, Nicodemus, at night, perhaps in the guest room at a house, maybe, maybe in Bethany. <coughs> the point is not really when he came. The important thing is that he came and he met Jesus. He came to listen. He came to find out about this man, Jesus. And for you and for me, the most important question is that, the most important thing is that having heard of Jesus, that we come. If I'm ever going to learn anything about God, I must come to Jesus. For some Christians here tonight, and you have no memory of exactly when you came. But the important thing is that you came, you met Jesus, and there was a change. Jesus said, and he still says, come to me, all you who are troubled and weighed down with care, and I will give you rest. The vital message is when we hear him say, come, that we actually come. And listen, every time the Bible is read, every time the Bible is read in New Presbyterian Baptist Church or a group somewhere, a Bible study group, every time God speaks through his word, the Holy Spirit of God silently, invisibly, strangely, in a heart somewhere, somehow, 
there, there's the call. Come. And it's difficult to explain. But, but the call is there. And we need to respond. We need to come. History tells us that Nicodemus Nicodemus was one of the three richest men in Jerusalem. We don't read about that in the scriptures, but history gives us some interesting information. One of the three richest men in Jerusalem. But he knew in his heart that what he had, all the riches, all the material possessions that he had, couldn't change the burden that he was carrying. And with us, what you have and what I have doesn't essentially change what we are. A famous preacher from the last century said this, earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom. Nicodemus realized very quickly that's, that's not true. That's not true. Another man, a secular man, actually written just a few weeks ago in an article in one of our national newspapers. He has no interest in Christianity, but he's realizing something very important. He said this, the pursuit of riches will eat us from the inside out. But Nicodemus wasn't just a rich man. Nicodemus was a respectable man. In fact, he was one of the most respected men in Jerusalem. When he walked the streets of the city, people knew who he was. And I think uh, that Nicodemus wasn't just respected. I think Nicodemus was a man who was loved and appreciated by the people. Nicodemus lived a moral, uh, upright, honest kind of life. But that night in that little guest room with Jesus, all his respectability and, and his decency and his courtesy and his riches couldn't remove the burden that was weighing on his heart. He was a rich man, that's true. He was respectable for sure. But he, Nicodemus was also a religious man. Jesus says he wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a teacher in Israel. Jesus says he was the teacher in Israel. Nicodemus was an outstanding teacher of God's word, at least in the eyes of his, of his colleagues. He was a man who could understand the scriptures. He was a man who could take the word and explain the scriptures. And yet Nicodemus says to him, uh, sorry, Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you're a ruler of the Jews and you don't understand these simple things I'm talking about. He was a man who was brought up with God's covenant people. He's schooled in God's law. He has read and memorized the writings of the Old Testament. He's recited and sung the great Psalms of David. He had all the position that a man could want. He performed all the rituals. He loved the religion. He sat on the highest court and council uh, of the temple. And yet Jesus says to him, How is it, Nicodemus? How is it? that you're Israel's great Bible teacher and you don't understand these things. I think that's an amazing thing. I think it's an amazing thing even today 
how men can climb uh, so high in religion and still have the most confused ideas about who Jesus Christ really is or why he came. How can a man like Nicodemus have missed this? We would expect this man with all his religious enthusiasm, with his religious passion, to know exactly what Jesus was talking about. He should have known, but he didn't. Now, I think Nicodemus was deadly serious about this. I think he was in earnest. I think he was, he was absolutely sincere. And I think in all of Nicodemus, his religious activities, I think he was seeking a right standing with God. I think that's true. But he's seeking salvation. He's seeking that right standing with God in the wrong way. And he would know the scripture in the Old Testament that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Nicodemus would have known that. I'm absolutely sure that Nicodemus and Jesus must have talked in that little room for many, many hours, perhaps until daybreak. Strange, isn't it? We're, we're only allowed to eavesdrop briefly into that sacred uh, conversation. But John details for us, and the Holy Spirit records for us the most important message that an individual must know. Jesus knows his heart, just like he knows your heart and my heart. Jesus knows the unspoken questions that were troubling him. Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Truly, truly, I say to you. This is vital, Nicodemus. Don't miss what I'm going to say. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you are physically alive. Because there was a time when you were born physically. But spiritually, even with all your great achievements, even with your riches and your respectability and your religion, even with all of that, you're physically alive, but spiritually dead. Dead to righteousness, dead to holiness, dead to obedience, and dead to faith. And, and that's the picture of all of us without Jesus Christ, without a, a saviour. Without a saviour, I have no spiritual appetite whatsoever. There is no spiritual life there. It's just, it's just nonsense to us, in a sense. Physically alive, spiritually dead. A natural man does not, in fact, a natural man cannot accept or even welcome the things of the spirit. So I need a saviour. Not just to forgive me for my sins. I need a Savior who will give me spiritual life so that my heart will be moved to trust Him and to obey Him. Over 30 years ago, I heard a preacher say this and I wrote it down. He said this The things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural man. 
not because he can't see their meaning, but because he sees it and regards what he sees as a waste of time. Let me read that again. The things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural man, not because he can't see their meaning, but because he sees it and regards what he sees as a waste of time. We can't really grasp these things unless we're born again. We can't really grasp these things until we've been regenerated. That's the word. It matters not how rich a man is. It doesn't matter how respectable he is or how religious he is. This book, the Bible, it, it's beyond him. He can read it from cover to cover and it, it, it's way beyond him. He can understand it academically, but in his heart, it means almost nothing to him. William Wilberforce, a man who was involved in outlawing the African slave trade, Wilberforce had a very good friend, and his friend was William Pitt. William Pitt was the youngest prime minister that uh, Britain ever had. William Pitt, although he was a friend of Wilberforce, Wilberforce was a Christian, uh, Pitt would treat uh, religious discussion with absolute contempt. He had no time for, for Christianity or religion of any kind. Wilberforce was a, a dedicated, committed Christian. And on one occasion, he asked William Pitt to accompany him to hear uh, Richard Cecil. Richard Cecil at that time was one of the great gospel preachers and Bible teachers in London. And after uh, much persuasion, Pitt reluctantly agreed to go along with Wilberforce to one of the Sunday services. And they sat there Wilberforce was deeply moved by the preaching and the teaching. And as they rode home in their carriage, Wilberforce, of course, was, was very anxious to know what his friend thought. And while Wilberforce was gripped by the preaching, William Pitt, who was an unusually clever man, in fact, they say he was probably <coughs> genius, William Pitt said, you know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man is talking about. You see, the unregenerate man, the man or the woman who has not been born again, will react just like Prime Minister William Pitt. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And notice how emphatic how definite those words are. Unless he cannot. There's no wriggle room left there. But how can a man, how can a man or a woman or a young person experience new birth? The old Puritan Matthew Henry, going back now to the 1600s, he said it like this. The new birth is something done in us and for us, which we cannot do for ourselves. It's a great change made in the heart of a sinner by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
the new birth is something done in us and for us which we cannot do for ourselves. It's a great change made in the heart of a sinner by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it doesn't matter how persuasive, how persuasive, persuasive the preacher is. It doesn't matter. He's not very persuasive just now. It doesn't matter how rich he is or how respectable he is or how religious we are. Regeneration is something that God does. Now you might say, well that's, uh, you know, if you're a Bible scholar, perhaps you would say, well that's New Testament stuff, what about the Old Testament? Well, I wouldn't argue with that. Regeneration is the same whether you look New Testament or Old Testament. And I'm thinking just now of King David, a thousand years or more before Nicodemus ever knew about this. And remember David said, create in me clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. David didn't say, make my old heart clean. He said, no, I need something completely new. And that's something only God can do. And it's called regeneration. Called being born again. And that brings us to the very heart of the gospel. It brings us to the last verse that I read. And Martin Luther called it the gospel in miniature. Jesus is still addressing Nicodemus. He's addressing him in that little room somewhere. And Jesus gives him the good news. He gives him the gospel. He says, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up that serpent on a pole in the wilderness, you can check it in the fourth book of the Bible. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes Whoever trusts in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All those, all those pictures in your Bible, Nicodemus, they're all about me. They're all about me. Just like that serpent picture so long ago, I will be lifted up. I will be nailed to an old Roman cross. And I will deal with sin totally. And absolutely, and finally, I will defeat death, I will rise in victory, and I can and I will give you a new life. I'm the only one who can. And listen, not just a new beginning in life, Nicodemus, but a new life to begin with. That's what regeneration is. It's a new life. To begin with. And only God can give it to you in Christ. Nicodemus met Jesus. Nicodemus met the Savior. Nicodemus met the Master. And his life was never the same again. 
I was intrigued uh, earlier this week, just a few days ago, I was intrigued to hear an interview on BBC. The reporter was a young man called James Reynolds. He was interviewing another young man who had trekked uh, halfway across North Africa. You may have seen this. Took them two and a half months to get from Eritrea to the borders of the Mediterranean. And he had just been released, just been rescued from certain death in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And the reporter asked him this question. What were your feelings when you saw the Italian Coast Guard? And he replied to the reporter, in really very good English, I feel like I've been born again. I, I felt like I had been born again. He had been rescued from certain death. The Lord Jesus Christ, as a believer, he gave us not just a new beginning in life, but a new life to begin with. And if you don't know the Savior, then you too can have not just a new beginning in life, not just turning over a new leaf, but a new life to begin with. We're going to sing a hymn, but let's just pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that it's your word and that only the Holy Spirit can take the seed of the word and implant it in the heart. So, Father, stir our hearts, encourage us, and for those who don't know you, may they this evening come to know the one the one who is absolute life eternal. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to sing a hymn. 296. And then our meeting is over. 296. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazareth and wonder how we can love him. Sinner condemned on the stage. 296 will stand after the introduction, please.
sin away. Through faith in Christ, eternal life he gave me. Now he abides forevermore within. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with each one until Jesus comes. Amen.